In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. We are in a four-part sermon series looking at four characteristics of Christian disciples. And uh, there's lots of characteristics of Christian disciples, but we're looking at four. Uh, two weeks ago, we said the Christian is eager to worship. Last week, Trent preached about being invested in others. Today, we're going to be talking about being confident in Scripture. And next week, gracious and generous in spirit. So if you want to take a look at the back of your bulletin, you, you'll see that we've actually simplified recently the, the circle that we've had for a couple of years uh, now. And uh, it's, I think this is easier to understand. Our youth minister said it doesn't require a sermon series to explain it, which is, which is good. Um, we see that we connect to God and to others. We serve God, uh, serve for God and others. We grow towards God and others. And it's, it's really three parts of a whole. Uh, we're worshiping God, but we're doing so in community. We are uh, serving uh, people around us, loving our neighbor and loving our Lord. We're doing it for their good and for the glory of God. And we're reading our Bibles, uh, both alone and in groups. And I really think if you do those things... Those three parts of a whole, you will see that organically you will become uh, not just sort of open to the idea of worship, but eager to worship. Not just acquainted with others, but actually invested in others and they in you. Uh, not intimidated by the Bible, but confident in Scripture. And not self-absorbed, or at least not wanting to, be, wanting to not be self-absorbed, but gracious and generous in spirit. And today we're considering that the Christian is confident in Scripture. I recently, uh, this week, looked up the top 15 songs on the Billboard Top 100 list right now. And uh, these are the, currently the hottest songs in America. And until I did that, I was under the impression that I was sort of hip, right? Um, I. Um, <laughs> I mean, perhaps the white beard should have uh, tipped me off, or <laughs> the collar, you know, maybe that should tip me off. But I, I, um, I am not as hip as I thought. I, have, uh, I had not heard of hardly any of the artists, and they're the hottest ones in America right now. Um, and I can, I can kind of see why these songs are popular. I mean, they've got, most of them, great beat, you know, kind of edgy, uh, daring. They were somewhere emotive, if a little sugary. Um, and whether or not you think they speak for you, uh, I think it is very clear that at least for a huge segment of our population, these are the poets of our day. And they're not the only ones, but these artists are influential in both articulating the voice of the culture and normalizing the voice of the culture. Um, and what I found interesting, I mean, the variety, I mean, you can imagine, it's a real variety among just these 15 songs, but in some way, every one of them expressed dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. One of them talked about always staying uh, a step ahead of those who wanted to bring him down. So asserting his power. Right. Uh, one talked about uh, the feeling of always running in circles. One talked about needing to escape the life that he was in. Several of them talked about broken hearts. Some from a mood of just real despair. But um, others from a determination to sort of rise above and to pretend like our hearts aren't broken. 
I don't, this is not a sermon against rock and roll or anything like that. I don't mean to disparage modern music. Only to observe that these songs express a cultural narrative that both articulates dissatisfaction and normalizes it. And I think you could even go so far as to say that they articulate and normalize despair. As if there is no other option than to be empty inside and just to try to fill yourself up with power or stuff or with whatever or with whoever comes next. And, and I would say for those who, who don't know any differently, it really may feel as if there is no option. But I want to suggest to you this morning that like a beacon of bright light shining into the darkness of dissatisfaction and despair, uh, the Bible directly answers that narrative. The Bible says that we were created by God to be satisfied by Him and by the things that He provides for us. The Bible says that we were created by God to have hope in Him through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible gives us the tools to understand our own lives, all the highs and all the lows, and to understand the world around us. And I admit readily that the authority of these countercultural claims of the Bible uh, depends entirely upon who it is that's saying them. And so if it's just a bunch of old dudes who got together and made it all up, then it's just not, not more than a bunch of fairy tales, which some have made that claim. You probably have heard. <coughs> but if in fact, if in fact the Bible expresses the very words of God Almighty, if He sovereignly worked through the Bible's human authors to declare to us exactly what He wants to say to us, then we would be foolish not to pay close attention, especially if He is speaking to us so that we may know Him. So our passage from Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, it's a very famous passage, in fact. And it is one of the seminal passages in Scripture about Scripture. And so we want to ask three questions of it. We want to ask uh, what, why, and how. What, why, and how? What does Scripture tell us about itself? Why is it the way it is? How can we learn more about it? So what does the Bible say about itself in this passage? Well, it says three things. First, it says that it is living and active. Living and active. Now, I've taught about this many, many times. And I have, uh, what I generally say is that it is, you could read a passage a hundred times, and it's li- but it's living and active, and on that hundred and first time, something else is going on in your life, and, and, and you see something that you've never seen before, because it's living and active. Now, I think that's true, but actually, I saw something in that I've never seen before, because why? It's living and active. So I want to tell you that I am saying a lot of words to you today, right? And when I stop talking... Those words are done, except that they are still in your memory and in your understanding. They're confined to your response, right? You will hear what I have to say, and you will use your will to either take what I have to say to heart or to walk out the door and forget all about it. But my words only have power 
as far as you hear them and respond to them. But the word of God is living and active. And so what happens with his word does not actually depend on our response or on our memory, thanks be to God, or on our understanding. Because the word of God both describes and manifests his will. His word is his action. He said, let there be light. And there was light. They didn't put a committee together to see what, you know, what, what they needed to do in order to create light. There was light because he said it. He said, let the walls of Jericho fall. And they fell. He said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And he came out. He said, you are forgiven. And you're forgiven. His word is his action. His word is not simply lively. It is alive. It is self Animated. His words are the agent of his will, just as Jesus is called the Word of God because he manifests the nature and the will of the Father. So the Holy Spirit actively brings the words of God to life in order to actively accomplish his will. The Word of God is living and active. Second, this is sort of the second thing the Bible says about itself, sort of an extended metaphor. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces deeply, even between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It kind of recalls our collect, our opening collect for purity, right? Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets, no secrets are hid. Oh, no! <laughs> We see that even before we read Scripture, that it reads us. Even before we interpret Scripture, it interprets us. The author is saying that there is, there is not a nook and cranny of our entire selves that the Word of God does not have a word for. It knows you. I mean, read the Psalms. They know us. And another piece of this metaphor is this double-edged sword is that as the word does it work, does its work in us, it cuts away the things, uh, cuts away things from us that are harmful for us. I mean, if the word of God, if the Bible is the word of God Almighty, then if he said something, said that you should do something, then you should do it. And if he says that you should not do something, then you should not do it. And you know what? We don't like that. I mean, the word is not just affirming. It is also convicting. And we don't like, we, we really prefer the affirming parts, don't we? We don't, we don't like uh, the, the uh, words judgment. But we can trust, because of the goodness of the one who is speaking these words, we can trust that it is cutting into us like a sculptor cuts into a piece of rock in order to reveal the beautiful image that is trapped Inside. I mean, it's no good for the rock when that chisel's pounding away, right? But it is for a wonderful and good purpose to reveal the beauty uh, inside. The conviction of God's word chisels away the sin that leads to dissatisfaction and despair in order to create the sculpture of the satisfaction and the hope that we were designed for. So it is living and active. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The third thing it says uh, about that this passage tells us about Scripture is that Scripture 
tells us about Jesus Christ. Now that may seem fairly obvious, but everything we know about Jesus, we know from the Bible. Everything we know about Jesus. He is, we, that He is the great high priest. That He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That He was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. That He healed the sick and loved sinners. That He suffered and died for our sins. That He rose again to eternal life. That He loves us. All this we know because the Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us about Jesus. So what this passage of Scripture tells us about Scripture is that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it tells us about Jesus Christ. Now, next, why? Why is it all those things? Why is it living and active uh, upon us and in us? Why is the Word of God penetrating? Why does the Word of God center around Jesus? Well, this is a very short but vital point. So those of you who wrote lovey-dovey notes to your sweetheart on Valentine's Day did not do it to keep them away from you, right? I mean, me and the other seven guys who were in the Publix greeting card aisle at 7 a.m. on Friday morning (laughs) were not there to keep our wives away from us, right? We were desperate, (laughs) but we needed to draw them close. Right? Now the Bible is not all hearts and flowers. But it is God's love letter to you. And here's here's what it says in this passage. So that we may with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This living and active piercing word of God is given to us because God wants to be with us. He wants to be with us. He's given us His Word to draw close to Him. So to nurture intimacy with Him. To teach us to know and to love Him. Because you know, life is hard. (laughs) And on our own, we're left to dissatisfaction and despair. And whatever coping mechanism we can come up with. But come what may, we have a God who loves us, who desires that we draw near to Him all the time. I mean, there is not a time where He does not want to be with you. He wants you in the throne room by the throne of grace. And He has given us His Word to tell us so. So we know what the Word of God says about itself. We know why God has given us His Word. But how can we learn more about it. How can we get to know this God who loves us through Scripture? Well, read it. <laughs> I mean, we don't, we don't ever need to say, well, I'm an Episcopalian, so I don't know anything about the Bible. <laughs> Let me tell you, you're not, you, the reason you don't know anything about the Bible is not because you're a, an Episcopalian. The reason you don't know anything about the Bible is because you hadn't read the Bible. So read it. Our denomination was founded By men who sought to know God in the Scriptures. That is our unqualified legacy and heritage. There is absolutely no better way to get to know God than to read His love letter to you. We are Christians. We want to know Christ. And He has given us the way to do it in order to be equipped to do His work. He's given us His Word. i got to tell you, I'm a really bad golfer. You know, you know why? 
because I don't play golf. <laughs> right? Like, I don't practice. I like the idea of it. I even have a set of clubs that are gathering dust in a closet, but I don't play golf. I don't put any effort into it, so I never really get better. But then there's, you know, there's other people who, who really love it. They go out to the range a couple times a week. They practice. They learn the mechanics. They get help with their swing from time to time. They read up on golfing strategies so they know what to do. And then they are far more equipped when they step out onto the course, right? They're ready. Now, everything works like that. And the Bible works like that. We should not expect that we know how to read the Bible if we hadn't read the Bible. But we should expect that those who read the Bible are far more equipped to do well at honoring God when they step out into the reality of their own lives. So where do I start? I mean, look at the size of this thing. It's huge, right? How do this seems intimidating? This is actually a study Bible, it has a lot of extra notes in it. But it seems really big, right? Where do I start? Read one chapter of the New Testament every day. Just start in Matthew and read one chapter. If you don't understand, just keep reading. It's okay. Or you can do Matthew and then Acts and then Mark and then Romans and Corinthians, something like that. I will help you. I would love to sit down with you and kind of come up with a Bible reading plan for you. you get confident. We can add in some Old Testament. It's fantastic. But I got to tell you, keeping yourself accountable doesn't work very well. I mean, if you don't believe that, just how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? I mean, you know, like there's just... It, Keeping yourself accountable doesn't work. So grab a friend, grab your spouse, you know, just get somebody and, you know, make it a competition. And if you miss a day, you got to buy them a cup of coffee. So, um, and, you know, you can just, I mean, we're growing towards God and towards others, right? So, so grab a friend or come, you know, come early to church, come to the rector's forum uh, or to the parenting class or join a Bible study or a small group. We've got dozens of them. We'd love to make more. So, Here's the point. Get to know your Bible so that you can get to know your God. We want to be Christians who are confident in Scripture. We want to move in that direction. We want to uh, be confident in Scripture because the living and active Word of God calls us into a life that will not leave us empty, dissatisfied, and in despair. It calls us into a relationship with God that can weather the storms of life and fills us and has, gives us hope in Christ, our Savior. Amen.